1: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. My name is Jordan Runtog. And I am the Naz with God-Given Ass. <laughs> yes, you are. And in case that hint doesn't clue you in, today we're focusing on something very near and dear to both of our hearts and many others as well. Uh, You know, of all the pop culture monoliths we've examined on this show so far, I'm probably hard-pressed to name one that has such a special place in people's hearts, with the possible exception of Baby Got Back. Uh, To call this one of the most influential albums in history is underselling it a little bit from my perspective. More important than all the trails that it blazed across music, fashion, performance art, and visual design, it's provided encouragement to generations of people who felt out of step or othered. In so many cases, this album gave people the strength to embrace their inner freak and unapologetically be themselves, just like the man who made it. I'm talking about David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which turns 50 Fifty years old this week. Uh, Heigl, in our Stairway to Heaven episode, you talked about Chuck Klosterman's theory that every guy, or at least a certain type of guy, goes through a Led Zeppelin phase. And I'd argue that most uh, artistically inclined, sensitive people that I know uh, went through a Ziggy Stardust phase at one time or
1: another. Did you? Um, You know, I was a total dilettante until (laughs) until basically my mid-20s. I mean, I had changes, because that was what my dad had, the, the greatest hits. Um, and I loved it. I don't know why I was you know, I was an idiot. I was like, <laughs> I love all this. I will not investigate further <laughs> like like a total dummy. These are some of my favorite songs. I'm sure there's nothing else out there. So it wasn't until like my mid-20s that I started really getting into like scary monsters and the Berlin trilogy and like you know just the mass of Bowie, and I didn't really check out until the nineties, like him. Um <laughs> And I think it was when he died that it just sort of crystallized like I f***ed up because he came through Pennsylvania. I had all these opportunities to see him and I didn't. And it was like, you know, really watching all the tributes roll in and seeing people write so movingly about what he meant to them that I was like, oh, yes, yes, he is an all timer and I whiffed this. I whiffed (laughs) my fandom. So, yeah, late blooming Bowie fan, but very much one still.
3: That's so funny you mentioned that. For somebody who's as into music as you are and I am, I had almost the exact same experience. My exposure to Bowie was really weird because there was such a cult around him in my high school in, in you know in the early two thousands. And to me, he just became like another t shirt artist, which was like just somebody yes. that you liked, and it said yes. more about who you wanted to portray yourself as rather than actually liking this artist. And it was just became like a sort of fashion signifier, like the Dark Side of the Moon logo or the Grateful Dead bears at my high school. And yeah. as a result, I really delayed in listening to
1: all those artists for reasons that I really can't articulate. It was a sense of like, I mean, the, the classic rock industrial complex kind of ruins this stuff. For yeah. And, and, and it's because it's, it's just hard like to find it on your own and come yeah, to it on it's your just, own. Or it's just like ambiently in the air so much that you're like, oh, I know. I know all there is. Like, I've heard those songs a million times. I know about them. And then you don't because you're an idiot and you're 17. So it's like, yeah. But no, I'm with you. And so, do you remember when he died? Were we working? Were you? We were both at People when he died, right?
3: No, it was just before I got there. Actually, this is really
1: weird. Bowie kind of
3: popped up in my life in a really weird way. The first Rolling Stone piece I was ever asked to write was the day Bowie died. Um, and that right yeah it was a strange mix of like oh my god this is terrible and oh my god I, oh you know my like Rolling for Rolling Stone like any kid who grew up watching Almost Famous was a dream yeah. come true so he's just always kind of been this strange presence that's popped up in my life almost like that episode of Flight of the Concords. he was just I had this <laughs> friend who would describe Bob Dylan's work to another friend who wasn't really into him at the time was when you're ready to receive Bob he will make himself known to you and that's how I sort of feel about Bowie. He always kind of popped up. Uh, Yeah, the day he died was really the day that I started diving into him in a serious way, actually, for that piece. And then a few years later, the folks at iHeart asked me to write a biography podcast about him. This is a shameless plug for that. Good, It's called Off the Record,
1: David Bowie, and it's it's 14 hours long. It took up a year of my life. Um, Jordan went insane while he was writing this. I was in touch with him the entire time, and it was worth it. Oh, well, thank it's you. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, it's,
3: it's 14 hours long, and it was written uh, from April 2020 to May 2021. So the peak dark days of the pandemic. And Bowie, um, in addition to sort of driving me insane, also got me through these really tough days. So I uh, I feel in a funny way that I've gotten to know him, and I've become extremely fond of him ever since. And, um, you know, for that project, he interviewed so many fans and artists who worked with him. And they really, Bowie people are like some of the best fans I've ever known. Just the biggest hearts. And yeah, so that really was just such a cool experience. So um, yeah, Bowie people are the best. And I hope we do them proud with with this episode, which, you know, Bowie broke so many boundaries and defied so many expectations. So in keeping with that same bold spirit of innovation, we're delivering our very first two-part Too Much Information episode. (laughs)
1: Bam, 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 bam. <laughs>
3: exactly. Uh, we really hope you enjoy it. From the eccentric, reclusive rock stars who inspired the character of Ziggy to the legendary piano used on the sessions, the funny connection between Starman and the Wizard of Oz, and the moment Freddie Mercury stood front row center for Ziggy's grand unveiling, here's part one of everything you never knew about Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. <laughs>
1: Well, I can't do spiders. Sp- I'm going to at some point. <laughs> Oh, please, yeah. The webs from all spiders. <laughs> catching things. Getting there in <laughs> Oh, boy. It'll come up again. Oh, I'm sure it will. Organically.
3: So it's early 1971, and David Bowie is at a crossroads. <laughs> we have to start every episode, every episode. when possible. <laughs> With the artist at a crossroads. Uh, he's been trying to break into the music business since 1965, which a lot of people don't realize. He put in the work, and he's changed his musical poses again and again to adapt to the prevailing tastes and trends of the time, starting with early mod-style R&B groups in the mid-60s with names like the Manish Boys and the King Bees, which are both named for blues standards. And he dropped his self-titled debut album in 1967 on the same day the Beatles dropped Sgt. Pepper. and they. Both We both have a similar, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Talk about getting eclipsed. (laughs) Um, And they both had this sort of similar psychedelic carnival music hall feel. And by 1969, he'd entered into his freak folk troubadour phase with stuff like Space Oddity, where he cashed in on the Apollo 11 moon landing, and that brought him to like the closest he ever had come to having a hit, really. Uh, And then by the dawn of the 70s, he teamed up with guitarist Mick Ronson and amped up his sounds, sort of like Led Zeppelin and The Who for the album The Man Who Sold the World, which flopped spectacularly upon its release, despite being a really sort of FM-friendly sound with that heavy rock and roll. Um, this is a super broad overview and a gross oversimplification of Bowie's uh, oeuvre, Bowie's canon to this point, but by 1971, it very much looked like he was destined to be a one-hit wonder on par with, you know, Zagger and Evans or Barry Maguire in terms of like <laughs> late 60s M- moody dare you slander Barry Maguire. <laughs> right, moody... <laughs> doomy apocalyptic songs and then he conceived of his alien alter ego ziggy and this would not have happened were it not for two trips literal not chemical trips that he took this year 1971 to
1: america it is such a shame that man who sold the world flopped because that record it's a crazy record is like a sneaky con- it's a sneaky contender for one of his most influential obviously the big thing off of it is the title track because nirvana covered it but Yeah, man, it's a bummer. I remember the band I was in when he died, we got invited to do like two songs at a tribute set, and we did Suffragette City, which killed, but then we did Black black Country Rock, because that song has such a killer riff that we were just like, uh, we were so into that, and it went over like the proverbial lead balloon. People (laughs) were just like, this is a Bowie song? So, I have a soft spot for Man Who Sold the World. That is a great record. It's one that's so unexpected i mean especially
3: when heard against hunky dory which came next which is like a mccartney solo record it's all piano based but yeah incredible album so david bowie may have been english but ziggy stardust was born in america in many ways the united states was david bowie's spiritual home it's gleefully excessive larger than life and filled with contradiction You could say the same about Bowie. You could be whoever you wanted in the United States. I think that was really what differentiated it from the UK at this time. And this place had mesmerized David since he was a little boy. I mean, growing up in England, all culture was American, you know, I mean, from... Uh, Disney movies, hamburgers, Coca-Cola, Elvis. It just seemed like America's chief export was pop culture. So his first trip to the United States in February 1971 was a big deal. And fittingly, it was in Hollywood, the land of make-believe and movie stars where anything seemed possible, that... The Ziggy Stardust notion really began to take root, and he sketched early notes for it on hotel stationery and cocktail napkins. And initially, the Ziggy Stardust idea was conceived as a Broadway-style production, and the score was going to serve as a new album. And this is because, from Bowie's perspective, rock and roll had become, by 1971, really dull. And he felt that it embraced showmanship, but not theatricality. And despite the recent spate of rock operas like The Who's Tommy and The Pretty Thing's SF Sorrow and Arthur by the Kinks, he thought that all the other elements like clothes and set design and lights and dance moves and acting were all treated as secondary to the music if they were attended to at all. And David wanted to incorporate all of these things. And he'd recently caught a performance by Alice Cooper, who was sort of the new gender-bending shock rocker on the scene at the time. And he was extremely not impressed by the whole electric chair, straight jacket, boa constrictor routine. Uh, in fact, he later said that he felt embarrassed for Alice because he basically seemed like so much of a tryhard. Yeah, he, uh, he said, This is a quote. I think he's trying to be outrageous, David said at the time. You can see him, poor dear, with his red eyes sticking out and his temples straining. He tries so hard. I find him very demeaning It's all
1: so premeditated That is rich Coming from <laughs> Bowie, by the way But I would just like to take issue with that For a number of reasons One, while Alice Cooper's pretty firmly Lodged in the popular consciousness For like the decapitated baby shtick And the shock rocker thing Sort of being this Marilyn Manson precursor A lot of the early press around him That Bowie would have been reading hmm. Around this time centered around the gender stuff the naming convention of naming this band and by the way his early band was called The Spiders so Spiders Yeah, Um, (laughs) The Spiders count stands at Yeah Ding Um, They talked about this all the time John Mendelsohn Entertainment World who would also go and write about Bowie Mm -hmm. uh, said of Alice Cooper he looked like a nightmare vision of unisex run amok In life, in 1971, there was an article starring him called "Rock in the Androgynous Zone." Um, Also from that year, in Crawdaddy, there was an article called "Alice Cooper: Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl?" Uh, In the in Milwaukee Journal, there was one called "Alice Cooper of Freaky Rock Fame is Just an All-American Boy Girl," and he's been really written out, I think. And it's I, you know, as early as 1969, he was saying in a, a magazine called Poppin. People don't accept that they are both male and female, and people are afraid to break out of their sex thing because that's a big insecurity that's doing that. So I think I just want to give some shouts to Alice Cooper. And I think Bowie slamming him is Bowie trying to distance himself from someone who, as with many other people, he would promptly rip off. (laughs) That's my Alice Cooper stick. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Thank you for that. That's stirring defense. Also, those records
3: slap. Yeah. (laughs) So this L.A. trip was in February of 1971, and in September of that same year, Bowie traveled to America again to sign his new deal with RCA Records. And this label was home to Elvis Presley, who was Bowie's birthday twin, in addition to being, you know the king of rock and roll and he saw himself as the heir to the king's throne and all in all this trip to new york was a big deal for bowie and he had some new friends that he wanted to meet in town the cast of a very 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 off-broadway show <laughs> called pork
1: heil tell <laughs> us about pork i i want you to really well they don't teach pork in drama school uh, it has been described somewhat uncharitably but not inaccurately as an orgy with arty dialogue. The <laughs> script had been heavy scare quotes written by Andy Warhol culled from over 200 plus hours of recorded phone conversations with the uh, the factory kids who were also in the cast. And this was a re- such a common thing around this time. I mean, that's whole, Lou Reed's whole thing was just jotting down Stuff that he heard around the factory and making it into songs. And it's very hand in hand with Andy Warhol's literally factory, like industrial approach to art. Like, well, we got to make a play now. I've got all these conversations laying around. This is now the play. We have a play. Anyway, uh, these are just some of the wildest people alive in this. They talk about it extensively in Please Kill Me, which is the punk oral history just flashing their boobs during performances. Uh, the plot of this thing has full frontal nudity, masturbation, homosexuality, douching on stage, simulated coprophagia with chocolate pudding subbed in is the real thing. Uh, I felt dirty just reading that. Uh, <laughs> the run lasted a scant few weeks in the heady summer of 1971, but somehow they got an offer to perform in England, which is like...
3: The English Something was lost in the translation yeah, the there. The English
1: didn't know. It was probably just the Warhol thing, right? They were like, oh, yeah. Andy Warhol. The English didn't know it hit him. An actress flashed reporters outside of the Queen's Palace. Other cast members were busted having sex in the bathroom of a pub. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. It seemed only natural that such free-spirited attention seekers would find their way to Bowie. In fact... They were some of the few Americans who actually knew who he was. They had read David's first major profile in Rolling Stone earlier that year, and they were intrigued by the photos of David looking very androgynous in his long hair and, quote, man dress. So <laughs> it reminds me of this uh, anecdote about Iggy Pop, where he uh, his lawyer came and picked him up from jail, like out of the drunk tank or whatever, and he was wearing a dress. And he, he enters the cell and he goes, Iggy, why are you wearing a woman's dress? And Iggy pulls himself up and, like, dusts himself off and he says, I beg your pardon this is a man's dress (laughs) (laughs) and walks out. Yeah. So this cast of the Warhol factory freaks, they hit England. They decide to look up Bowie. And uh, you put this akin to uh, what's her name from the, the basis of legally blonde writing all of her stuff on pink paper. Like if you put yourself out there, the right people will find you and the
3: most off, be the most authentically you and yes. it will attract the right people and the right kind of attention. And you will be seen for exactly who you are. I think this is another great example of that.
1: And this next anecdote will undo everything that you just said, because <laughs> they were not impressed with David Bowie <laughs> and the version of himself. He was at the time. <laughs> he was kind of in this transitional folky phase. He was wearing baggy pants, his big hat and doing an acoustic set. And I think the quote from one of the Warhol scenesters was they loved Angela because she was like pregnant and like behaving really outrageously. And they well, she was American, of, and so she yeah. had that
3: kind of like... Yeah, I I interviewed a few of these factory people, Cherry Vanilla and Tony Zanetta, and they both said the same thing, that David, I think the word they used was kind of a drip. Like, he <laughs> was very quiet. and I mean, because he was a shy guy. I mean, he, yeah. that's the thing that they would always remark on, was he had the capacity, kind of like Marilyn Monroe, to just turn it on, and everyone in the room would just turn their head to him When he didn't do anything, you know, perceptively, but just his whole energy would change, but he could also just completely disappear if he wanted to also. So, yeah, that's kind of what they said, but he was in this kind of awkward phase stylistically and, you know, fashion-wise, but also they kind of got him in a shy, shy mode. But it's just, it's funny because they go see David's concert and... They're just thoroughly not impressed by this kind of folky drip that they see on the stage. And then they invite him to go see their play. And, you know, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio on Titanic. Like, want to go to a real party? And then he sees everything you described on stage from, you know, homosexuality on stage, douching, etc. And this completely shattered his mind because... It had only been three, four years since there had been a censor board that had to approve all plays that were performed in England. I mean, so this was just, you know, this is four
1: years after homosexuality had been decriminalized. I mean, that's what we're working with here. Yeah. And the kind of gritty urban grossness that they represented was like a longtime obsession for him. He read beat poetry. He read the Kerouac novels. He loved Velvet Underground. And so to see this seriously underground stuff
3: suddenly performed on stage, especially after David had spent so much of his youth, you know, reading all the beat poets and Kerouac, and as you mentioned, Velvet Underground's music and, uh, you know, John Ritchie's City of Night and stuff like that, this completely
1: blew his mind. So he went to see Pork repeatedly and got close with the cast. And in fact, within a year, many of them would be on his payroll essentially (laughs) the other thing that he got from them was the notion of being on a always be closing always be on um so jane county would later say we kind of took david under our wing and we all decided to help him out you know glam him up and make him more outrageous um we can quibble over whether or not over their role i know some of these factory types are great reverse rememberers <laughs> yeah um, they
3: they do resent him because a lot of their slang expressions and stuff would show up in his song lyrics and he did borrow a lot from them but yeah. their, their so, influence on him and his
1: you know has been kind of overstated a little bit y- yes in your saying <laughs> No, I don't know. Okay, so I'm just going from the Please Kill Me thing because Jane County does talk about... She fronted this proto-punk band called the Electric Chairs, and they were sort of the also-rans of the Maxis Kansas City and, and CBGB scene. Like, they were this really wild band, but they never really caught on in the same way that a lot of the other peers from that scene did. Um, and she has been very adamant about her influence on Bowie. You know, she says in Please Kill Me, David loved my songs, and so I sent him my demos. He loved them and wanted more, so I sent him three sets of demos. Man Enough to Be a Woman... Are you a boy or are you a girl? Queen age baby. Uh, He wanted to take me into the studio and produce an album. So I sent all my music and little bits and pieces started showing up on his albums. So her words. So the cast made obviously understating this somewhat, but Pork made quite the impression on David. And so when he gets to New York, he decides to look them up and with them, Andy Warhol.
3: Yeah, it's kind of inevitable that the cast of Pork brought David to Warhol's factory to meet Andy himself. And, you know, you think of it now, this could have been one of the great artistic summits of the 70s, but it was pretty awkward and painful. Uh, This was just a few years after the assassination attempt on Warhol's life in 1968, and security at the factory had been ramped up, and the vibes were really bad. Um, (laughs) He had to ring a doorbell marked, do not ring, and then uh, (laughs) Bowie and his sort of small entourage were grilled by Andy's guards. Just bad vibes, and when Andy finally appeared, he was, for some reason, clawed in jodhpurs, high-laced boots, and a riding crop. Um, which I'm sure added to the weird vibes and yeah, much like Alice Cooper, David was not impressed with Andy Warhol. He would later recall, I met this man who was the living dead, yellow in complexion, a wig on that was the wrong color, little glasses. I extended my hand and the guy retired. So I thought this guy doesn't like flesh. Obviously
1: he's (laughs) reptilian. And yeah, what a weird thing to say, right? Yeah, um, I mean, neither man
3: were known for being especially chatty, and Warhol just completely thwarted any attempts to make small talk. And this was just kind of his way, he was just not the most socially tactful person. But David took it really personally, you know, he wanted to be taken seriously by Warhol as a peer, and so he viewed this as rejection. <laughs> And so David tried to break the ice by playing a new song he'd written and he'd recorded, but it wasn't out yet, called Andy Warhol, which would be on Hunky Dory. And he played it for Andy, played it for the, you know, the man who inspired it. And Warhol listened for a minute before sort of absently wandering away. And then a few minutes later, one of the factory flunkies came over and informed David that Andy hated the song that he named for him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh which is amazing. I mean, I guess the only thing that Warhol actually liked about Bowie were the bright yellow patent leather shoes that he had on. And Hell yeah. he, he was so intrigued that he grabbed the Polaroid and just began photographing the shoes obsessively inches away from the shoes and not even making eye contact with David. Which is incredible. And before David left, he took part in one of Warhol's famous screen tests, where guests are placed in front of a camera and encouraged to do whatever comes to mind. It's basically a video portrait And David, who had this extensive background in mime, acted out his own disembowelment, just (laughs) ripping his guts out bit by bit. You can see this on YouTube. I think it's on YouTube. I've seen it before. It might be it's in a documentary. But yeah, this disembowelment, as far as he was concerned, that was kind of a physical manifestation of what this visit was like for him.
1: Can you imagine being one of the, like, lesser-known factory flunkies who's almost assuredly on acid at this point? And, like, this is the scene that you're confronted with? (laughs) Like... This tall alien looking stranger comes in, plays Andy Warhol a song about Andy Warhol and then has his shoes obsessively photographed and then acts out his own disembowelment. I mean, that would put me off drugs for the rest of my life.
3: I mean, think about being the one who had to go inform Bowie that Andy hated his song. Andy <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's arguably worse. So that's true. All in all, this meeting with Warhol, kind of a bust, but thankfully things went slightly better when David met another of Warhol's associates, Mr. Lou Reed. I love Lou. He's I such know. A, yeah. I mean, he's such a cantankerous, especially around this point of his life. But. Oh, big time. I mean, yeah. This is this was the period when Lou is basically uh, in a self-imposed state of exile from music and living out on Long Island with his parents, and I think working at a, as a typist in his father's yeah, his was uh, an accountant. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, not a great time to meet Lou Reed, I suppose. But uh, Bowie was thrilled because this is just one of his heroes, and it's. Interesting. Bowie got past an advanced copy of the Velvet Underground's debut back in 1966, becoming probably one of the very first people, if not the first person in England to ever hear it. His manager at the time had brought it back over during a business trip in New York. And Bowie just devoured the album. I mean, this was like Kerouac's books put to music. And he incorporated a few of the Velvet Underground songs into his early set. I mean, definitely making him the first person in England to cover stuff like Waiting for the Man and White Light, White Heat. And Bowie had visited New York on his first trip to America earlier that year, the same trip he went to L.A., and he made a point to go see the Velvet Underground downtown, and after the show, he snuck backstage and cornered the guy that he thought was Lou Reed and just fanboyed out. And after it was all over, he learned that the guy that he'd been fawning over was not Lou Reed. It was Lou Reed's replacement, Doug Yule.
1: Okay, though easy mistake to make and in fact one that I made when I was first downloading Velvet Underground songs off Kazaa because Doug Yule's whole thing at this point was trying to sound he idolized Lou when he came into the band and sings his he is a better version of Lou Reed's (laughs) vocals like oh sweet nothing is like his that is such a beautiful performance and he sounds like Lou if you read about them at this time he had also started dressing like Lou and they sort of looked. they were both just like you know mousy brunette guys so it was like This is before the internet. You don't know what Lou Reed looks like. You see a guy who sounds like him, and you're seeing the Velvet Underground. I made the same mistake, David.
3: Okay. (laughs) Well, remember this incident, because the whole sense of stardom is just what people think you are mentality comes back later in the Ziggy Stardust story. But now Bowie is sharing a meal with the real Lou Reed, who, again, is just sort of a shadow of his former self at this point. But what do they bond over? They bond over... um, Not really caring much for Andy Warhol. Uh, uh, That was really, I mean, Lou during this dinner was kind of drunk and sullen, but the only time he brightened was when Bowie told him about this really awkward meeting with Warhol. And Warhol was famously the Velvet Underground's very hands-off manager for a time. And Lou joked that the Velvet Underground considered producing an Andy Warhol doll that had a string. And when you pulled the string,
1: nothing happened. (laughs) So, but at this point, another massively important American in Bowie's life comes in, and that is Mr. Jim Osterberg, a.k.a. Iggy Pop. Uh, Lou decides to call it an early night, heads back to Long Island to his cloistered life of misery, <laughs> and uh, but Iggy Pop shows up at Max's Kansas City, and Bowie was a big fan of Iggy and the Stooges. He cited him as his favorite singer in interviews, but more than the songwriting, it was the Iggy Pop persona that captivated him. And honestly, how could you not? Mm. There's this amazing bit Henry Rollins does about his like long-running feud with Iggy Pop that is completely one-sided. <laughs> he just, when Rollins' band was like a thing, he was like, um... he'd be Black obsessed. Flag? His band was like a thing? No, no, no Rollins' band. Rollins' band, oh. after, his band after oh, Black Flag. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, no, no. so he has, this, he has this very funny bit uh, where he talks about, um... He basically got blown off stage by Iggy Pop. And so he then made it his As everyone yeah. did, yeah. And so he made it his mission to like train as physically hard as he could and like rehearse the band as much as he could to try and defeat Iggy Pop and and he just <laughs> he has this great quote yeah exactly Well, it is but it's this masterful thing it's on youtube you got to look it up there's two bits in it that i love one is he says you know there's jim and there's iggy and jim is just a nice guy from Ypsilanti, michigan like oh hey how you doing hey real nice to see you great gig and then there's iggy pop (laughs) and he's like and you never know who you're gonna get until or you know who you're gonna get when it hits the stage He talks about like seeing the Stooges or the band, whoever the band was at this point, like vamping on down in the street and like seeing a roadie holding a mic out at arm's length from backstage, (laughs) like as far from the mic as physically possible and seeing Iggy come sprinting from backstage, grabbing the mic and just like immediately start bleeding and like already shirtless and sweating. And he goes this whole thing about they played some festival and Iggy just, like, destroyed the stage and he invites the crowd up on there. And um, it's just a show-stopping, complete catastrophe. Brings the whole festival to a halt. Rock and roll incarnate. And he walks past Henry Rollins, who had played before him. He walks past Henry Rollins, ch- like, trots off stage and as he's passing Henry Rollins, he looks at him and goes, Huh? <laughs> so Iggy Pop, rock and roll incarnate. Um <laughs> But he's in a he's at a crossroads. <laughs> in 1971, <laughs> he's at a crossroads. Like Bowie, he's at a yeah, crossroads. Yeah, and on someone's couch. You know, the Stooges were never destined to be a... They, they were a sprint, not a marathon. Um, <laughs> the band split. Iggy was on uh, heroin, extremely on heroin. The <laughs> OD'd. He crashed the van. He was stranded in the Detroit projects at one point wearing a pink tutu. And by the summer of 71, he was crashing at his ex-manager's New York City apartment. And that is where he was on this very night when he got the call to come meet Bowie at Max's. But Iggy had no idea who Bowie was. And he was watching a Jimmy Stewart movie on TV. So he was busy. And also on heroin. Uh, So he was finally persuaded to come down and meet Bowie. And uh, they just hit it off. And why shouldn't they? They're both these quiet, intelligent, semi-retiring guys in their private lives who became these larger-than-life rock icons um i would also like to point out the other big new york formative punk influence on bowie around this time which is the new york dolls Hmm. um especially in the gender bending department um you know the new york dolls kind of gets cited as like an early like the 77 kind of crew of punk but they were really going around this time and they were playing in all of these downtown spots and uh i think it's in please kill me again that lee childer's uh, it says that Bowie and Reed came to see them a lot this time. And their whole thing was like, it was like proto-punk stripped down rock and roll. And they were just a bunch of huge, ungainly men in drag on stage. So all of the load stars of New York City rock and roll are kind of converging on Bowie at this point. We're going to take a quick break, but
3: we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment.
2: Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply.
5: Toyota believes in the power of personal choice for reducing carbon emissions. Beyond Zero is their vision to go beyond carbon neutrality, and they're working toward it with a diverse lineup of electrified vehicles. And electrified doesn't just mean plugified either. Toyota offers more low and zero emissions vehicles combined than any other automaker, so you have choices that fit your lifestyle. Whether you want a hybrid EV that starts and handles like a traditional Toyota with better MPG, a battery EV that delivers a smooth, silent, clean ride, or a plug-in hybrid EV that goes between battery and fuel to give you the best of both worlds, Toyota has you covered. And for those of you who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool. But it doesn't stop with vehicles. Toyota is decreasing its plastic waste, supporting water conservation efforts, and expanding programs that protect critical species, all to help reduce their environmental footprint and create a positive impact on society. Giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions. That's Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com electrified electrify vehicles beyond dash zero dash vision. Toyota. Let's go places. So you have these two
3: trips to the United States. You know, if you think about it, the trip to Hollywood in February 71, that provided the stardust, the whole like, you know, dramatic onstage element. And then this trip to New York, that was the Ziggy. That was the uh, you know, as we mentioned later, a lot of people theorized that Ziggy was Iggy with a Z, but uh nah. we'll get more on that later. So David gets back to England in the early fall of 71, and he begins to assemble his own custom-made superstar, Ziggy Stardust. And he holds up in his own version of Andy Warhol's factory, this giant, decrepit, gothic manor house called Haddon Hall that he rents with his wife Angie and little son Zoe, and his bandmates who would become the Spiders from Mars, Mick Ronson, bassist Trevor Boulder, and drummer Woody (laughs) Woodmansey.
1: That guy's f***ing name. Yeah, I know. It's really hard to say the most british ever sorry <laughs> woody woodman's yeah.
3: and this whole custom made superstar notion was derived in large part from Andy Warhol who was a painter who branched out into film and music. And he incorporated all these mediums into large-scale happenings with a capital H, which were really some of the first full-scale multimedia events. And David wanted to go even further. And his idea was that his performance would become concept art. He wouldn't just exhibit a fantasy, he would inhabit that fantasy. And getting out there and singing songs to him was just boring. He felt that people didn't want a recital. They wanted a show. And Bowie promised to deliver this full package. And he had this great quote around this time. I'm the last person to pretend that I'm a radio. I'd rather go out and be a color television set such a great line. And to explore this bold new concept, David decided to experiment on someone else. And this was (laughs) another page right out of Warhol's playbook. He would create a superstar from scratch, and the band would be his canvas. David would write the songs, choose the clothes, pick their new names, and even provide the vocals. And it's really kind of a canny move because without risking his own career middling as it was at this time— David could experiment to his heart's content and discard the ideas that didn't work and cherry pick the ones that did for himself. And to continue the whole, you know, space metaphor, it's like NASA testing early rockets with dogs and apes. Um, that's a terrible metaphor. And this one's even worse. Uh, for Bowie's personal ape, he recruited the, <laughs> the handsome and charismatic Freddie Beretti. Sorry, Freddie, for comparing you to an ape, um, a 19-year-old budding clothing designer that Bowie knew from London's gay club scene. And David rechristened Freddie Verretti as Rudy Valentino and steered him into the studio with a kind of ragtag group of musicians that Bowie called... Arnold Korns, that was the name of this band, I guess. Um, awful. It's a terrible name, supposedly <laughs> taken from his love of the Pink Floyd song Arnold Lane, but yeah, mm. terrible, terrible band name. Uh, now, in the annals of rock and roll history, the band Arnold Corns seldom gets a mention, and this is really not surprising. They released just two singles between 1971 and 1972, both of which are mediocre and both of which sank like stones on the charts. But despite their total lack of commercial success and their truly horrendous name, corns <laughs> deserves recognition because they were the prototype for Ziggy Stardust. Uh, the guy that Bowie hired to be the frontman, uh, Freddie Breddy, he couldn't sing to save his life. So David went full Milly Vanilli and secretly sang on recordings of uh, two of his new songs, Moon Age Daydream and Hang On To Yourself, both of which were destined for greatness on the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders From Mars album. But these early versions with Arnold Korns, they needed uh, a lot of work. The tempos were kind of sluggish, and the vocal performances, I think the keys were wrong, and he sounded really kind of thin and reedy. It wasn't a good performance. So Arnold Korns, commercial flop, but by no means a failure because it allowed Bowie to toy with alter egos and high-concept pop, and now he was ready to give it a shot on his own. But there was a problem. What was that problem? The problem is David had
2: just
1: wrapped Hunky Dory, which is still a month out from being released. This is your favorite Bowie record because it's piano heavy, right? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I like a lot of the Ber- the Berlin stuff too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. say I, this is got this is the most McCartney esque. Mm, fair, but it, it didn't fit his vision of this multimedia spectacle. Um, and it also sort of didn't rock. You don't get the crowd on their feet with you know. The, there's no,
3: there's no Starman. There's
1: no, yeah. you know,
3: five years on this. It's yeah.
1: But RCA has socked money into it. But I guess they. Did they say that they didn't hear a hint on this or they just said, we no, want they just, more? They just said, get back in the studio. We want more. Yeah. God love them. So he returns to the studio to tackle basically a backlog of songs that he has. This is before Hunky Dory is even out. Yeah. Which is, you know, under the sway of Stooges, Velvet Underground. And he told his producer, Ken Scott, I don't think you'll like this next album. It's much more rock and roll. Um, you know, the other big, I don't know if he's an unsung hero. He's pretty much a sung hero, but you know, Mick Ronson is like the MV, the other, the non Bowie MVP category of, of this era. I mean, he's his musical that, director, basically that, that guitar sound is, I mean, that guitar sound is so influential. They have created a pedal hmm. that just lets you replicate what he did with his wah pedal which was do you know about this it's like halfway up right yeah they call it the cocked wah sound i mean what's your mouth i know (laughs) yeah um the the, what a wah pedal does is is it sweeps through a frequency range right if you leave it in a certain position on this heel to toe spectrum it'll stay as a sort of frequency mid-range boost and you know ronson i think is playing a les paul which is traditionally a bit more of a bassy guitar and so he parks his wah in this mid position and what that does is it gives it this really mid-rangey honk and bite to it and it is it it's become like just an archetypal i mean you, go, you can go to his studio and be like i want that mick ronson sound and so there is now a pedal that, that i think electro harmonics has created that is called the cocked wah or and some kind of cock name and uh there's a rooster on it and uh it, you, it just lets you get that wah sound with a one-button pedal. So he's just a tremendously influential guy. And as you mentioned, the musical director. The sessions start at London's Trident Studios uh, in November of 1971. Um, Bowie gets bored so quickly. (laughs) Two or three takes to learn a new song before he would say, no, it's not working and move on. Producer Ken Scott says 95% of these vocals are all first takes, which is wild. And uh, Ronson finished his charts in the bathroom, usually like 10 minutes before they were slated to uh, record because they were on that much of a time crunch. And that's that's why this, I mean, yeah, it's a live sounding record. It's a raw sounding record. It does not sound like musical. It doesn't sound like cabaret. It sounds like sweat, work. (laughs) And now Jordan's piano sidebar. Speaking of cabaret. This is not a very uh, piano-centric album, unlike
3: Hunky Dory, but I wanted to give a quick shout-out to the piano at the studios that they were using, Trident Studios, because it's arguably one of the most important instruments in rock. It's a Beckstein concert size grand piano, and it was used on the Beatles' Hey Jude Elton John's Your Song, Tiny Dancer, and Leave On. Harry Nilsson's cover of Bad Fingers Without You. Queen's first three albums, including Killer Queen and The Seven Seas of Rye. Another Carly one. S- Carly Simon's You're So Vain. Another and one. Loving You's the Right Thing to Do. Lou Reed's Transformer album, uh, probably best heard on Perfect Day. Not to mention Bowie's classics like Life on Mars and Changes. Another one. Plus George Harrison's (laughs) All Things Must Pass album. Another one. Super Tramp's Crime of the Century, Early Genesis albums, and so many more. And what has become of this instrument, you may ask? Well, this, this, this breaks my heart (laughs) while the piano was being moved, the cradle that was supporting it broke and this priceless instrument tumbled into the basement of the studio and had to be rebuilt, permanently altering its sound. And um, it was sold at auction in May 2011, but the details of the price and purchaser have never been made public. Although it's rumored to have been sold for between 300 and 400,000 pounds, so around 400 and 600 grand in American dollars. Uh, Somewhere out there is a piece of rock and roll history. And as I say in every episode, it
1: belongs in a museum. You know, if you ever think you're having a bad day at work, (laughs) imagine being the guy who fed up that piano god
3: oh man uh, i mean you can tell i mean it's a, such a distinctive sound i mean think about those elton john records think about uh i mean life on mars i mean it definitely that's yeah. such a sound of like early 70s fm rock it's yeah. You know, god anyway One of my favorite tracks on Ziggy Stardust is Moon Age Daydream, specifically because I love the unusual sax recorder duet on the solo, and I always thought that was just Bowie being weird. Yeah. (laughs) I always thought that was just Bowie being weird, but apparently it has a precedent. Uh, He apparently took the idea, or borrowed the idea, I should say, from the B-side of the 1960s Hollywood Argyle number one hit, Ali Oop. You know Ali Oop, right? What did you just say to me? All right, I guess not. Uh, the B-side was called Show Know a Lot About Love, and there's a baritone and a flute playing the same line together all through it. And uh, But on Moon Age Daydream, Bowie's playing a recorder
1: and a baritone sax. He played them both himself. He got his first instrument was the sax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that some of the vocal takes from that first recording session sounded weird, so they took this one a minor third lower than the first time they tried it because the original key was just way too high for him. But it's funny, he does return to this technique frequently. He loves putting his voice through, like, hell. I mean, the famous one is um, Heroes, where they uh, set up the microphone successively farther and farther away from him every verse, so he had to belt louder and higher every time to get heard, and it's just, uh, oh, God, that's one of the best songs ever. God love him god love him for wrecking his voice for us because i don't know you listen to some of those later live recordings and it's like yeah well that and the cocaine you put that much cocaine down your vocal cords, they're not going to do what they're supposed to do but yes god love him for suffering for us like the christ (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean you mentioned mick ronson's solos here
3: uh i mean we could pick any one of the solos on this album uh just to dissect and gush over i just am picking this one you mentioned that it's just so crucial to defining this era of Bowie's sound and bowie summed up Ronce's musical contributions in the booklet accompanying the 30th anniversary edition of ziggy he said uh he called mick a perfect foil and collaborator mick's raw passionate jeff beck style guitar was perfect for ziggy and the spiders it had such integrity you believed every note had been wrenched from his soul and in a moment that could be viewed as thunder stealing, because this was after Rono had died in the early 90s, uh, Bowie claimed that he literally drew out the shape of the solo that he wanted for every song. And the graphic that he drew with a crayon or felt tip pen for the Moon Age Daydream solo, he described it as starting as a flat line that became a fat megaphone type shape and ended as sprays of disassociated and broken lines. And um, that whole idea of visual representation of music was an idea that he borrowed from uh he says he borrowed from Frank Zappa you said that it goes back even further
1: yeah i mean there's all there's like John Cage and Lamonty Young and mm. Anthony Braxton and all these different avant-garde composers of like Anthony Braxton has just like titled his ridiculous uh some of his compositions don't even have proper names they're just like graphical stuff and and also like Frank Zappa it was like a he hand-did all of his scores so yeah. I don't know how much I buy that, but sorry. Let's do a lightning round on Suffragette City. Yeah,
3: speaking of innovative ways to get sounds, that sound that I had always assumed to be saxophones on Suffragette City, it's not a sax. It was created by an ARP synthesizer, and Bowie wanted a larger-than-life sax sound, so he and Ken
1: Scott, I imagine Rano, uh, all collaborated to create sounds uh, that a real sax couldn't. The ARP Odyssey, one of the most famous uh, synthesizers of all early synthesizers, but a deeply famous sound you have heard it on Rocket Man, Chameleon by Herbie Hancock, the Doctor Who theme, Zappa stuff, uh, Kraftwerk, Devoe, Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is Ryuichi Sakamoto's first band. I mean, it is people are obsessed with the ARP, and um, yeah. So if that sound sounds familiar to you, it justifiably is. <laughs> Thank you for taking that detour with us. Let's talk about Mott the Hoople. Yes,
3: I didn't realize this. Before recording it himself, Bowie offered Suffragette City to Mott the Hoople, who were an English band that he loved, but they were about to break up. And to try to persuade them not to, he offered them s- several songs and offered to produce them. They refused to take Suffragette City, but instead grabbed all the young dudes, which became a huge hit, thanks in large part to Bowie's, uh, not only his songwriting skills, but his production work. And, I and think he's he sang on there. He sang, yeah. yeah, I think Yeah, so, we
1: yeah. We had a... <laughs> my beloved wife and i had a semi fight about this because we were listening to the Glastonbury set and then we went back and listened to the uh original all the young dudes and i was like yeah that's bowie on there and she's like no it's not <laughs> we looked it up and he's like a scratch vocal i think a guide vocal yeah that ends up still on there but yeah you can hear him um oh boy Heigl's slang corner please jordan give it to me
3: Yes, Hyle, I know, given your tireless research into the slang found on Aretha Franklin's version of Respect, I thought you might like this dive into the famous wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am exclamation on Suffragette City. The line is the title of a track on Charles Mingus' 1961 album, Oh Yeah, Oh Yeah. Which would have been very familiar to Bowie because he was a massive jazz fan. And according to Mingus, the phrase, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, was uh, something that his drummer Max Roach used to say when he was, quote, unable to express his inner feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that. And uh, (laughs) David is believed to have borrowed the Hey Man backing vocal from the Velvet Underground's 1968 song, White Light, White Heat. And this brings us to the album's epic closer, Rock and Roll Suicide, which blends a lot of different influences, James Brown and Jacques Brel, somehow. (laughs) Probably the only overlap I can ever think of of these two people. Uh, Bowie has suggested that the French poet Baudelaire helped inspire the lyrics, but there's also believed to be connections to a poem by Manuel Machado called Help me
1: with this. chants Andalou, which is probably a reference to Incian Andalou, oh, uh, which is the... The Man right? No, it's oh, Buniel, I think. Oh, yeah. That's the slicing up eyeballs one. Slicing up eyeballs. The Pixie song <laughs> reference it. But you say there's a problem with this. Yeah, so the poem has the line, life is a cigarette, cinder, ash, and fire. Some smoke it in a hurry. Others savor it. Uh, It's in the Peter Doggett book, which is, I think it's called Man Who Sold the World, David Bowie in the 70s. Mm. And he is actually talking about another obsessive Bowie fan's research on this. But he points out that David Bowie could not read Spanish as of 1972 and that no English translation of the poem existed at this point. So that is one Bowie fan fact-checking another Bowie fan brought to you by two other Bowie fans. So we're now entering recursive Bowie fandom. Uh, or maybe it's like, like a, a frontal, Yeah, or a human centipede. But the line, Oh no, love, you're not alone, likely references
3: the Jacques Brel song, You're Not Alone, which appeared in the musical Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris. I love Jacques Brel. I came to his music mostly through Scott Walker, who did tons of his songs. I think he might have even done an album that was just Jacques
1: Brel covers. And Bowie was a
3: huge Scott Walker fan. He was even in the Scott Walker documentary, 30th Century Man, a few years ago, which, well, I guess 15 years ago by now, which is awesome. Yeah. And uh, Bowie. Love Jacques Brel and performed his song, My Death, during some of the Ziggy Stardust live shows. He's also performed, I think he performed Amsterdam at the BBC, a number of his songs. So Jacques Brel... Big influence on Bowie. Um, but in addition to this French torch ballad, Bowie also claims that rock and roll suicide was influenced by James Brown's Try Me and Lost Someone. He calls them loose inspirations, which mm. is, again, I just think a crazy melding of influences. And he talked about this later. He gave an interview to a performing songwriter, and he said, what I enjoyed is being able to hybridize these different kinds of music somewhat. It wasn't obviously a 50s pastiche, even though it had that rhythm that said total 50s, but it actually ends up as being a French chanson. That was purposeful. I wanted that blend to see if it would be interesting. And it was interesting. Nobody was doing that, at least not in the same way.
1: Um, So now that we've, gone through some of the songs individually let's talk about ziggy stardust as a whole it's often touted as a concept record but it was never really conceived as such um the working title was round and round which is uh, a chuck berry cover that was recorded but i don't think uh, was it released in one of those mammoth gargantuan reissue sets it's definitely out there, but yeah, okay. it was
3: originally included on an early uh track listing for, you know, the early version of what was ultimately became Ziggy
1: Stardust. As was the Port of Amsterdam cover by uh the Jacques Brel song and uh Velvet Goldmine, which later becomes the Todd Haynes movie. And another song, did I mention Holy Holy? Another song called Holy Holy. They 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 didn't fit the Ziggy thing, so they got cut. Well, it wasn't so much that they didn't fit the
3: Ziggy thing, it was just they uh, you know, according to Ken Scott and members of the band, there was really no discussion of a plot or any kind of you know overarching concept while they were recording this. And David basically admitted as much as years later. He said that he basically assembled an album of tracks that fit together thematically. And it, the, the whole theme kind of emerged
1: slowly, but it wasn't really a premeditated thing. Yeah, so it starts to emerge as a picture once stuff is getting cut. And essentially, the linchpin to this is Starman. Just a last-minute addition, which boggles my mind. Uh, the RCA execs listened to an early acetate version of the record, and in as every exec must do <laughs> at one point in their life, say, "Where's the single?" Um, to their trained ears, it lacked something catchy enough to go number one with a bullet. So David went off and wrote a song. He bumped the Chuck Berry cover, and. <laughs> Starman it references Space Oddity, which he possibly did to tweak the suits because that was his biggest hit at the point. But you know, it had a lot of other things that went in there. It has uh, T Rex. We didn't talk about Mark Bolan, but he's obviously a big rival slash influence on Bowie at the time. Old friend, um, they've known
3: each other since like the mid '60s, and they're basically frenemies. the uh, The
1: yeah. yellow
3: patent leather shoes
1: that Warhol was so obsessed with were a gift from Mark Bolan. And uh, it's got the guitar figure uh, from You Keep Me Hanging On by The Supremes. And it also has a bit of a Judy Garland nod. You know, that chorus has the octave jump from uh, Over the Rainbow. And apparently... I'll do it, he, it for us. Do it for us. Mm-hmm. Somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently he... Combined them at one point. He did a a live performance at one point. He interpolated uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow into Starman. i have never heard that. Uh, that. That's, I think, in the David Bowie in the 70s book. And with Starman, the narrative coheres. The story becomes this idea of a visionary poet named Ziggy who attempts to save Earth, which is headed toward destruction, uh, ultimately only to be deified and destroyed by ego and rock and roll excess. And, you know, this is not a move that occurs without precedent. The Beatles had pioneered this meta idea of portraying a fictitious group on Sgt. Pepper's. The Who had made their rock opera Tommy. But Bowie commits to the bit. (laughs) Is what he does more than, you know, he he, becomes, he goes method, basically. The structure of the record is a meta commentary on the structure of a rock record right while perfecting the rock well yeah record, and the also of being the rock a, 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 an a plus rock record you know you tackle you have all these couched political themes like the end of the world organized religion extraterrestrials the alienating nature of fame and it comes at the right time because by 1972 we're into the me decade the optimism of the 60s has died you've got increasing social unrest uh, economic ecological uncertainty England is into the recession that sort of begets the punk movement, um, record breaking mm. unemployment near constant striking and coupled with the fact that they're what, 15 years out of world war II, So just, everything is still bombed to, shit. um, constant power outages because the grid isn't working. And so it's a very real possibility that Bowie thought there were five years left and whether or not he did believe it, he committed to the bit. Um, <laughs> there's a critic named paul trinka who called ziggy stardust a tribute to artifice a play on identity an alter ego placed on an alter ego it had been in david's mind since he first gushed over a guy that he thought was lou reed a star was whatever people thought you were as you meditate on that we'll be right back with more too much information after these
5: messages Toyota believes in the power of personal choice for reducing carbon emissions. Beyond Zero is their vision to go beyond carbon neutrality, and they're working toward it with a diverse lineup of electrified vehicles. And electrified doesn't just mean plugified either. Toyota offers more low and zero emissions vehicles combined than any other automaker, so you have choices that fit your lifestyle. Whether you want a hybrid EV that starts and handles like a traditional Toyota with better MPG, A battery EV that delivers a smooth, silent, clean ride. Or a plug-in hybrid EV that goes between battery and fuel to give you the best of both worlds. Toyota has you covered. And for those of you who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool. But it doesn't stop with vehicles. Toyota is decreasing its plastic waste, supporting water conservation efforts, and expanding programs that protect critical species, all to help reduce their environmental footprint and create a positive impact on society, giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions. That's Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com/electrified-vehicles/beyond-zero-vision. Toyota, let's go places. But no
3: man is just a concept. I am. (laughs) (laughs) The the pillar of salt. (laughs) Continue. Where did Ziggy Stardust himself come from? Let's dive into the specific influences that Bowie pulled to create this alter ego. Uh, First and foremost, aliens. Aliens. Bowie loved aliens. Aliens were one of his enduring passions. It stretched back to his childhood when he would sneak downstairs after bedtime to watch episodes of the BBC's Quatermass experiment on TV, which was this pioneering sci-fi show. And it was one of Bowie's very favorites. And as a boy, he really came to believe that aliens were watching him, studying his habits. He began to wonder if he might be one of the light people who were allegedly an alien-bred race of super people who were supposed to include luminaries like Galileo, Churchill, and Isaac Newton. And by the late 60s, he was contributing to London UFO newsletters and even went UFO spotting on his roof. <laughs> I love this. He, I guess, I don't know how this would help with UFO spotting, but he would point a wire coat hanger at the sky for long stretches, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know what that did. But a neighbor saw him doing this and yelled up asking if he got transmission from BBC Two because he looked like (laughs) a TV antenna and he stopped doing it soon after because he was embarrassed. But the subject of aliens still really fascinated him and this topic, showed up frequently in his new songs. Um, So aliens is a big one. Also, Iggy and Lou, his new friends. Uh, When composing the story of a star man who fell to Earth, Bowie was inspired by real-life fallen stars, these grandiose yet tragic figures who traveled too far down the road of excess and lost their way. And the most obvious of these is Ziggy Pop, who we talked about earlier. Um, It was really come on hard times in this period. And he'd really become something of an obsession to Bowie over the last year. He'd obtained footage of Iggy performing at, I think it was the Cincinnati Festival in 1970. It's very famous early Iggy footage. It- Rules. Yeah, it's on YouTube. It rules. There's like, the one where
1: he's wearing the silver gloves and literally it's that famous photo of him pointing with one hand when yeah. he's held aloft by the crowd.
3: Yeah, it's like Ugh. I think it's like the moment the crowds. Well, it probably isn't the moment that crowd surfing was born, but one of the most incredible early examples of crowd surfing. Uh, and Bowie would watch this footage repeatedly on a reel to reel projector at his house And this footage inspired him, but it also really haunted him because on film, Iggy looked like a feral god. He's shirtless. And again, he's being held aloft by his, you know, his legion, his disciples. And now Iggy could barely summon the strength to leave the couch that had become his home. Uh, This Iggy character that Jim Osterberg had created had gone haywire and nearly killed his creator. It was a rock and roll suicide in a sense. And so that was a big inspiration for the inner workings of Ziggy Stardust. And to a lesser extent, David was also inspired by Lou Reed, who was, again, now living with his parents out on Long Island in a state of self imposed exile from music. Both Lou and Iggy had become victims of the industry and also their own idolatry. And this was really par for the course for 1971, which is a really rough year for music in the last three years you had the deaths of brian jones Jimi hendrix janice joplin and jim morrison not to mention the kind of abdication of Pink Floyd founder Sid Barrett, Fleetwood Max Peter Green, and the Beach Boys Brian Wilson. They all stepped back to deal with um, increasingly debilitating mental illness. Interestingly, some have thought that the line in the title track, Ziggy played guitar, he played it left hand, but made it too far, was a reference to Jimi Hendrix, who was also left-handed. Uh, so David had seen the hazards of rock and roll at close range. And during his first trip to Los Angeles, he had met this guy Gene Vincent, who was an early rock and roll pioneer, his song Be bop lula is like, you know, one of the, the sacred texts of early rock. And Gene Vincent was only 35, but when Bowie met him, he was, looked just really old and sickly, and his body had just been mangled from years of hard living. And just a few weeks before Bowie entered the studio to begin work on Ziggy Stardust, uh, Gene Vincent died. And so that, I think, on some level impacted bowie and bowie also borrowed gene vincent's movements on stage he'd been uh he developed a limp from a car crash uh gene vincent did and david used gene's hobble as part of some of his early ziggy stardust stage moves and he called the hobble a first position for ziggy
1: stardust it's a ballet reference right
3: yeah Um, but the (laughs) uh, unlikely link between down and out musicians and messianic aliens can be found in the story of an early British rocker named Vince Taylor. And Vince Taylor is best known today for recording the original version of the Clash's brand new Cadillac, which is Vince Taylor's version rules. But in the early sixties, he had a brief moment of being poised to be kind of the new Elvis in Europe. At least that's how they were promoting him. But in the mid sixties, he started suffering a series of really distressing mid-concert breakdowns, uh, culminating one night when he appeared on stage in white robes in informed form the crowd that he was, in fact, Jesus Christ. And the incident pretty much killed his career, and he filled his days wandering the coffee shop scene in the London district of Soho, basically ranting at anyone who would listen. And it was there that he met a pre-fame David Bowie, and they got to know each other a little bit, and David would always remember Vince spreading out a crumpled map onto the sidewalk outside of a crowded subway station and pointing out various ufo landing sites across europe uh so this was a guy who was to use bowie's own words out of his gourd totally flipped not playing with a full deck at all but he remained in david's mind as quote an example of what can happen in rock and roll midway between an idol and a cautionary tale and Brings us to kind of the most personal influence uh, of Ziggy Stardust, uh, his brother, his half-brother, Terry. And the topic of madness was always a very compelling theme for Bowie, given the streak of mental illness that ran throughout his own family, especially his half-brother Terry. And Terry's a really fascinating figure in Bowie's life. He looms like a specter throughout it. He kind of was haunted by him forever. Terry was much older than David, and David looked up to him as a hero, as a little boy, and Terry turned him on to art and jazz and beat poetry and all the stuff that David really loved as a team. But by his early 20s, Terry started displaying symptoms of schizophrenia, which worsened dramatically as the years went on, and he died by suicide in the 80s, uh, laying down in front of a train. Uh, And David always felt this streak of what he called madness in himself and frequently cited his music and the multifaceted personas that he had as a way of keeping his sanity in check. And he once said, one puts oneself through such psychological damage in trying to avoid the threat of insanity. As long as I could put those psychological excesses into my music and into my work, I could always be throwing it off. So Vince Taylor forced David to confront both his greatest dreams of rock stardom and also his deepest fear of insanity. And I would say that more than any one person,
1: Vince Taylor was probably the guy who inspired Ziggy the most. And so with that, we have pinned down or at least mapped out the soul of Ziggy. But let's talk about the name. Uh, you know, it's easy to assume that Ziggy is just the word Iggy with a Z, but David has said a number of things about it. He told Rolling Stone at one point that it was just one of the few Christian names he could find beginning with the letter Z, which I guess, <laughs> Fair. sure, convenient. Um, Zachary then, Stardust doesn't, uh, doesn't have the same. <laughs> Zane. Oh, that actually kind of works.
3: <laughs> actually, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Then in an interview in Q magazine in 1990, he said that it came from a tailor shop called Ziggy that he passed on a train and that he glommed onto it because it had that the Iggy connotation, but it was a tailor shop. And so he said, well, this whole thing is going to be about clothes. So it was my joke calling a character Ziggy because Iggy Pop famously is only 50% clothed at any given time, (laughs) Um, possibly 30%. Jamie, can we pull up those numbers? Uh, but, Stardust, where do we get Stardust from? Stardust is a nod to an offbeat American singer known as the legendary Stardust Cowboy, a.k.a. Norman Carl Odom. Something approaching a country sci-fi tiny Tim will get you in the neighborhood of his whole shtick. Are you into Uh, him?
5: I... (laughs) No.
1: <laughs> I think you, I think you've talked to him in as much as you have exposed me to him. Odom had released a charmingly bizarre country sci-fi single called I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship in 1969, the same year as Space Oddity and even on the same label. David was given some of his singles by people at the record company and much like Pork the play, not the food stuff, it blew his mind. When someone asked Odom why he added legendary to his name as a teen, he replied, I am a legend in my own time, which is very, very Bowie. And it's got this great mixture of old and new. You know, you've got Stardust, which to people of this generation, probably the first thing that leaps to mind is the Jazz Standard by Hoagie Carmichael. But it is also, in a very literal sense, the dust from stars. And the other important reference that comes around this time from that is Woodstock. You know, Carl Sagan is coming into vogue at this time, and he's recently popularized the notion that if all matter from the universe is descended from what was present at the time of the Big Bang, then we are really, essentially, matter from stars. We are stardust. And so it's in it's that line in Woodstock that everyone loves so much. Um, <laughs> you, I take it that you don't like the Joni uh, Mitchell song, Woodstock. It's fine. It's fine. No, I mean, it gets into a little—I love Carl Sagan, but it gets into a little of that hippie dippy stuff for me, which we are all nothing. I'm too much of a nihilist to, to buy into that. Um, it's a
3: cool but- name for a project like Ziggy Stardust because, <laughs> you know, the whole idea of Stardust, things that have existed for millions of years, being recycled and reformed. That's yes. kind of what Bowie's doing, you know, with Ziggy Stardust. It's an
1: amalgam of familiar but disparate elements. Yeah, what he called a grand kitsch painting. Um, but, Put that you on know, my tombstone. Yeah, right. I mean, it, look, you can play spot the influence with Bowie, but some people would just call that spot the steal. Almost everyone in his life at some point has said like, oh, he got that from me, <laughs> right? Like he got yeah. a different element of a different era from me. Mick Jagger would famously joke, never wear a pair of new shoes in front of David, <laughs> which I don't think was a joke. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, David getting bringing this all back to the legendary Stardust Cowboy. David had become a lifelong fan of him, and he covered the I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship song on his 2002 album, Heathen, which surely put some badly needed royalties in the coffers of Mr. Cowboy. Uh, <laughs> and they met that year for the very first time after Bowie had obsessed over him for 30 years, and he reportedly completely fanboyed out, which is just truly adorable.
3: So, you know, I mean say what you will about bowie and his you know magpie habits. yeah he was a true music fan and when he yes. loved somebody he really went went to bat for him and tried to help him when he could he could meet dignitaries or whatever all day long but when he met an artist who really touched him it showed and i always thought that was cool i love it when artists stay fans um so we have the name we have the soul the clothes Everyone knows that it's the clothes that make the man, or in this case, the star man. For inspiration, Hey-o! thank you, thank you very much. For inspiration, Bowie looked towards the futuristic minimalist outfits worn in Stanley Kubrick's *A Clockwork Orange*, which had been released in 1971, uh, only to be promptly banned in the UK. Um, specifically, he loved the look of the droogs, the androgynous teenage thugs whose crisp white outfits underscored their ruthless brutality. David would later say, I wanted to take the hardness and violence of those outfits and soften them up by using the most ridiculous fabrics. And they assembled outlandish jumpsuits from cloth obtained at London department stores and vintage furniture fabric. And the end result was very kind of charmingly homemade-looking, at least the early versions of the Ziggy Stardust outfits. Bowie would later admit it was a cross between the Jinsky and Woolworths, something cobbled together from whatever was lying around. And the look was finished off with a pair of knee-length wrestling boots done up in fire engine red. And he debuted the look at his 25th birthday party on January 8th, 1972, a fitting start to a new year that would be defined by Ziggy, at least in his life. Um, David might have been very enthusiastic about dressing up as a flamboyant androgynous alien, but his band not so much. <laughs> these were all tough guys from Northern England. And when they first got to look at these new outfits, their initial reactions were variations of, I'm not wearing that. Mick Ronson moaned, I'm a musician. I've got friends that are going to watch me. Hmm. And again, he was a hard man from Hull, this rough industrial town in Northern England. So he was horrified and he was so horrified that he actually packed his bags and headed to the local train station (laughs) intent on quitting the band for good. Apparently just before a gig. And drummer Woody Woodmansey spent an hour on the train platform coaxing him back into the fold. Hmm. But, Uh, After the rapturous response from audiences, particularly the ladies in the audience, to these new outfits, they all very quickly warmed to the idea of these uh, crazy clothes. And David would later say, when the guys realized how many girls they could pull and they looked so outlandish, they took to it like fish to water. They never had so many women in their lives, and so they got tardier and tardier.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not later and later. They got sluttier and sluttier looking. (laughs)
3: He And Bowie used reverse psychology to get these gruff guys to wear makeup, telling them that it would make them look normal under the bright spotlights. So there was always this mad dash for mascara
1: before Showtime, which Trevor Boulder also, in addition to being a great bassist, one of my favorites from the era, probably the best set of mutton chops in rock and roll. Yeah. They're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. they look like badgers growing out of the side of his <laughs> face. Very I mean, true. Good Lord. Yes, Sorry, yes, yes. as you were. No.
3: <laughs> uh, well, speaking of hair, the hair came last. Ziggy's famous hair came indirectly from David's mother, which is very strange, especially, we don't have time to get into this in this episode, especially considering their.
1: Difficult relationship. Um for more, check out David Bowie off the record, available from the IRT <laughs> app. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um
3: David's mother, Peggy, had her hair done by a local hairdresser named Susie Fusey, I think is her name, who would later become Mark Ronson's, not Mark Ronson, who would later become <laughs> Mick Ronson's wife. And David's mom passed along Susie's name to David's wife, Angie, who came in one day to get her hair cut. She got a, a spiky new do. It was dyed red, white and blue and uh, very unmissable, just like Angie herself. And Angie was thrilled with Susie's work and suggested that she come back to their house to see what could be done with David's shaggy locks, which she deemed two-rod stewardish. That's a quote and a good one. <laughs> and it's funny, I mean, unlike the rest of David's style, it really hadn't evolved much from his 60s folk hippie period. And Susie suggested that David get a haircut too and David was open to it and he started looking through magazines to try to find the look that he wanted. And the other result was a blend of a few different fashion spreads. One was model Christine Walton in the August issue of Vogue and also a bit of Kansai Yamamoto's shoot in Harper's where he used a red kabuki lion's wig to great effect and that's not the last time we'll talk about kansai yamamoto the great japanese fashion designer so susie got out a razor and started slicing out this elaborate feathered style which was puffy in some places and spiky in others like a sci-fi peacock and um a few weeks later he would famously dye his locks red hot red that was the color marked
1: on the dye and the whole ziggy stardust look was in place I can't believe he still had hair after what they put that yeah. hair through. That, that, oh, yeah. that dye had 30-volume peroxide in it, and then on top of that, she used an anti-dandruff treatment called Guard, like an over-the-counter right. anti to help it stiffen and stay in place. Like, my God. Just pre-gel. That man, uh, vocal cords, hair, he put everything through the ringer, including his dick, as we'll talk about later. <laughs> um, I don't have a segue for this next one. <laughs> Going from there uh, The look was in place Time to capture for posterity There you go uh, The cover for Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars Was shot January 13, 1972 At photographer Brian Ward's studio In Little Muse in central London They did a few studio shots with the band Before uh, Ward suggested that David Accompany him outside to the street It's the golden hour He wants to make the most out of the last bit of natural light But it was a cold and rainy winter night <laughs> <laughs> and David had the flu, so he didn't want to walk too far. He wanted something that evoked a Brooklyn alley scene. So he grabbed Mick Ronson's guitar. They walk a few doors down from the studio to twenty three Hedden Street, and David stopped, rested his foot on the stoop, and four snaps. That is a tremendously high batting average of film to iconography. <laughs> ah. Um, five which is the insanely detailed Bowie fan site has suggested that some of the inspiration from the cover came from, uh, Michael Powell's proto serial killer film from 1960 called peeping Tom, which is about uh, a London photographer who kills uh, his subjects with a knife hidden in his camera tripod. Um, really, uh, it's like up there with psycho as far as like the early slasher cinema. Uh, so make of that what you will. Now, let's talk about the sign. Let's get even more granular and weird with it. Bowie's photograph standing outside of a fur dealer called K-West, which you can see on the cover. And uh, as fans are wont to do, project all kinds of stuff onto that. Uh, They have theorized that it was a code for Quest, as in Galaxy Quest. Um great movie we should do an episode on that yeah. uh bowie loved it because it added a sort of you know he loves all this meaning data layers of interpretation stuff so of course he loves that but the good furriers of k west did not they threatened rca with legal action writing a letter that read in part our clients are furriers of high repute to deal with a clientele generally far removed from the pop music world Our clients certainly have no wish to be associated with Mr. Bowie or this record, as it might be assumed that there is some connection between our client's firm and Mr. Bowie, which is certainly not the case. Incredibly British. (laughs) Uh, But they did come to appreciate the steady flood of tourists who came to photograph their storefront until they closed in the early 90s. And we're coming into It Belongs in a Museum Part 2. The original K-West sign was, quote, Retrieved (laughs) By a Bowie fan After one night Out on the tiles In 1982 This is according to The aforementioned Fiveyears.com They published An email exchange With this fan As well as his Pictures of the sign Uh, He claims that it was So badly damaged When he took it That this was an act Of preservation He said it Quote It wouldn't have Lasted a heavy storm So it was ultimately Restored and exhibited As part of a David Bowie exhibition In 2012 which is close enough to a museum to probably satisfy you,
3: huh? Yeah, it's getting there, yeah.
1: (laughs) And uh, the same year that exhibition landed, a heritage plaque was uh, placed at the site of the former K. West Furriers, marking it into perpetuity as the place that Ziggy crashed to Earth. Um, Now it's time to take the show on the road. The first Ziggy show is on January 29th, 1972 at the Friars Islesbury, Not far where Kubrick had filmed the subway attack scene in A Clockwork Orange. People paid 60 pence a ticket to see Bowie, who is amusingly, if not humbly, billed as the most beautiful person in the world. Sure. Uh, Only an hour from London, so many kids made the pilgrimage, and among them were Freddie Mercury and Roger Taylor, names you may recognize from a little group called Queen. Uh, and if they were looking for inspiration for a theatrical larger-than-life band fronted by a weird alien sex god, they certainly found it. <laughs> Let's set the stage, literally and metaphorically. The lights go down. Wendy Carlos's synthesized version of Ode to Joy from the Clockwork Orange score blares from the PA. Strobe lights. Trevor Boulder and his sideburns appear. Mick Ronson and his cheekbones appear. And they're all dressed in metallic cat suits. <laughs> <laughs> the drummer was also there. Woody Woodman <laughs> was also present. They launch into Hang On To Yourself, their opening tune, as Bowie struts on stage with his spiky red hair, paler than death himself, <laughs> diamond patterned one piece, red wrestling boots. I mean, I don't know. I'm surprised people's heads didn't actually literally explode. This blend of costume, choreography, drama, all couched within the context of a rock and roll show. Nothing short of revolutionary. And then you have, and then also, I feel like we just keep coming away from this. The songs, the bangers, banger after banger, first time live, live in the flesh. And people went ape. (laughs) They swarmed his dressing room. They wanted to know where he cut his hair. They wanted to know where he got his clothes. Some people just wanted to touch him. One girl was so overcome with emotion that she punched him, which sounds like something she should work out with her therapist. And the next day, the headline about the show literally read, A Star is Born. Not a stretch to call this one of the most far-reaching moments in live rock and roll history. You know, you got your James Brown at the Apollo. You got Duke Ellington at the Cotton Club. You got Miles Davis at Newport. We got Zeppelin at Earl's. Something. Uh Dylan at Newport. Dylan at Newport. Yeah. Beatles Bowie on at, Sullivan. Yep, Beatles on Sullivan. Bowie at the Friars Islesbury. <laughs> anyway, the effects of that night would ripple outward, touching on virtually every aspect of popular culture, not just music, but film, fashion, social and sexual mores, and the very nature of twentieth century fame itself. Uh, you know, you could call it the night the seventies began. Couldn't you, Jordan?
3: I think you could, yes. You absolutely yeah. could. And I think that it's here that we should leave you all, dear listeners, for today. Ziggy Stardust is born. Hallelujah. Rejoice. We'll talk about how the star man made a star out of David and inspired generations of artists on part two
1: of Too Much Information, Ziggy Stardust edition. Higel, what do you think? I am so excited. And all, and all of you dear people should be as well. All right. Well,
3: thank you so much for listening. My name's Jordan. And I'm Alex. Join us here next time for part two. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio.
1: The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog.
3: The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched,
1: written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl.
3: With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.